Welcome to The Cave, the first podcast series produced by Neos Cosmos, the Greek-Australian newspaper delivering news and information since 1957. My name is Fotis Kapitopoulos, a former editor and long-time contributor. I often meet intriguing people that I think you would love to hear from. The Cave will feature a diversity of guests who are interesting, controversial, intelligent, brave, creative and funny. It's safe and warm in the cave, so please come inside, sit down by the fire, make yourself comfortable and enjoy the conversation. Today's guest is Professor Louise Ann Hitchcock, Professor in Archaeology, Historical and Philosophical Studies from the University of Melbourne. Louise is the go-to person on Aegean peoples in pre-Hellenic and pre-classical Greece, the Middle East and the Near East. Louise has lived and worked in Greece and in Israel and her work focuses on the important influences that Philistines, Egyptians, Minoans and others have had on what we broadly call ancient Greece. She's a polymath, politically engaged, controversial and a self-confessed progressive libertarian. Louise, welcome. Thank you. Christophe Pouli. Ah, Milasalinika. Bravo. Louise, um, let's be clear here. Didn't the Greeks invent everything? They invented the idea that they invented everything. Oh, Maybe well. that was Europe uh, that <laughs> invented that idea. We'll go to that. You call yourself an accidental archaeologist. How does that? How does one become an archaeologist by accident? Um, well, you study something else for your bachelor's. In my case, political science. You spend a few years uh, disillusioned with politics and drifting around and partying. And then you see the movie Lawrence of Arabia and... Uh, you're immediately captivated. You go out and read 17 books on Lawrence and then decide he was an archaeologist, so I'm going to be one too. And what you uh, decided, where did you study archaeology? Tell us a little bit about um, that. I, did, I studied archaeology actually at UCLA. I did my undergrad at UC, USC. If you know the USC mascot or the Trojans, if you know anything about the two schools, you know they're big rivals. Um, and uh, they didn't really teach uh, archaeology at USC. So I went to UCLA, and I actually started out wanting to be a classical archaeologist because I'd minored in philosophy and read Plato and Aristotle and had this idea that the Greeks were rational and logical all the time. Well, kind of, well, hold on for a minute. Yeah. Like, that's an interesting one for a minute. We're, we're far from that, right? Greeks have never been rational and logical, have they? Um, maybe in the time of Plato and Aristotle, but uh, and uh, the, uh, sculptors like Polycleitus, um, with Apollo and the sort of um, calm, logical, rational gaze, and uh, it's a construct. It's 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 propaganda, fake news. Fake yeah, we're news. good. We're good at that. We're great, right? Well, you inve- we're, Greeks invented. Uh, well, actually, maybe the Egyptians invented fake news, but uh, well, tell it, me a little bit about tradition. that. Tell me a little bit. About what do you? Because I mean, we were talking about before we started this podcast. I asked you, uh, Greeks must have been what history's greatest spin doctors, right? I mean, they were pretty darn good. Yeah. That was our invention, really. Yeah. Yeah, well, we took the maths from what, Assyrians, we took other stuff from all over the world, and we kind of packaged it up and spun it really And well. not, not just from all over the world, but from the past. A lot yeah. of things that uh, made the classical moment possible, I think, were invented um, in the early Bronze Age and even the Neolithic. Stone tools, which are still used today. In fact, the Guardian claimed that the mortar and pestle is still one of the most ten important kitchen gadgets. Um, metallurgy... Uh, writing, um, early medicine, maritime, uh, maritime navigation, uh, shipbuilding, all these things were necessary in order for 
uh, humans to progress. And the Greeks were the great inheritors of this. Which, which brings me to the next question. You're an expert on Aegean civilizations, and uh, you talk a lot. I've heard stuff, and I've seen what you've bits and pieces of what you've written. You talk a lot about uh, pre-Hellenic peoples, the Philistines, for example. And again, I mean, I'm really interested in this because the Philistines have had a lot of bad press, right? I mean, we still use the word Philistine often to talk about someone who we think is unculture, uncouth, unaware. And you say that the Philistines were actually quite sophisticated, quite aware, quite adept. Why have they had this bad press? Um, I think this has to do with the spin doctors in the form of the ancient Israelites and their fake news in the form of the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament, it's not just a religious document, but it's a document about creating um, Jewish identity. And the way to create a cohesive identity is to create an other. And the Philistines, for them, were the other. Um, one of the bad raps that the Philistines get is that they're pagan, but everybody was pagan then. Everybody, even the Israelites in their early history were uh, polytheistic. And so the Philistines sort of get every bad uh, idea about culture projected onto them by the Israelites, and that's how this comes about. Um, there's even a famous story in the Bible about Philistine plague, which there's no evidence for, and this has to do when they're ca carrying the ark supposedly to Ashdod. And um, plague is interesting because plague is often associated with migrant peoples, not just the Philistines, but in the medieval period with the Jews. And in Strasbourg, several thousand Jews were put to death because it's thought that they brought plague. And then more even in our modern times, you hear... Um, Donald Trump referring to migrants in the U.S. as coming from shithole countries and um, these cities full of migrants being infested. Infestation is associated with vermin. Um, vermin is associated with plague. I'm surprised he hasn't blamed them yet uh, for the plague, but I guess he's, got, he's picking on China Always right picking now. on China. That's right. This is what actually I was going to say. I've noticed, we've, and we'll go back to the ancient stuff, but really there's a kind of a mirror. There's a consistency and a continuation of old approaches, old politics throughout civilization in some ways, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is why history is so important. A lot of people tend to dismiss history, but knowing history allows you really to literally not repeat it. But... Uh, people tend to still forget history. What would have happened in the ancient world? Is it happening now? Are people, we've seen the rise of nationalism, uh, closing of borders, blaming of others. Do you think it's similar patterns? or? Yes and no. I don't think the closing of the borders is a problem because the closing of the borders isn't so much to keep migrants out, it's to keep anybody carrying the plague out. And um, we know very well from... Um, Renaissance medieval period that plague traveled by ship, um, usually vermin on a ship. And um, if you look at some of the big hotspots in the U.S. right now, New York, which is a major port of entry, also has this very extensive subway system which people have stopped. Well, Constantinople right. in the 1200s, I mean, a plague coming in from there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So hotspots, I think, are associated with um, transportation hubs and also seem to be um, characterized by food producing, air concentrated areas of food producing like these meat plants, and you've even had it here in Melbourne. And so the way to, I mean, it's a very old-fashioned way to stop it is to lock it down. And um, it's worked for us. It hasn't worked so well for the U.S., but uh, um, it's, you know, it's 
it would have probably been transportation hubs in the distant past as well. It, talking about transportation, talking about we started off the idea that Greece has been influenced by many around the Mediterranean. Shipping is still a, an extraordinarily important aspect of Greece's economy. I mean, sea people, who are the sea people? That's a good question. Um, we don't really know for sure. And the term sea people, it was actually invented in the 1860s by Gaston Maspero to refer to these various tribal groups mentioned by the Egyptians, some of them better understood in terms of their um, ethnonym than others, like the Peliset being the Philistines, um, the Luca, who were the Lycians, and we hear about the Luca also in the Hittite tablets. Um, the Danaeans, the Shekelesh, or the Jekker, who are also mentioned in the Egyptian tale of Wenamun. And um, instead of arguing that they're from a single origin, we've developed, my collaborator Aaron Mayer of Barlon University and I developed this p model of piracy, um, whereby pirates, they don't have a single ethnic origin, but they um, attract followers as they travel and sack cities. They kill some people enslave some others, take others as followers. And you can see this, um, we developed this model based on historical piracy. And it can explain things like um, the fact that the Sea People's pottery is Aegean-style pottery. And it's locally made at the end of the Bronze Age in Cyprus, which Hellenizes, and in Philistia, and in other places in the Mediterranean. Minoans? Did the Minoans have a similar thing? Um, they could have been, but by then, the Minoans, uh, one archaeologist I've worked with refers to them as Mycenaeans because mm. Crete is also begins to Hellenize, and you also have, uh, you have a great change going on before the end of the Bronze Age in Crete with the destruction of all the Minoan palaces around 1450, except for Knossos, and there you start to see the linear B script appear. Um, you start to see Megaron-style houses appear all around Crete, um, the Mycenaean kylix uh, is introduced, a style of drinking cup. So, so why did things fall apart? I mean, I've heard you talk about this great burning or this great destruction of well, pre-Hellenic peoples. Am I correct in, in saying that, or some great event that occurred? And then we have... Do you mean the Minoans is pre-Hellenic? Yeah, the Minoans is pre-Hellenic. We don't really know. People have argued that it was inter-island warfare. People have argued that the Mycenaeans went in and conquered them. People have argued that maybe the Minoans were fighting with each other and the Mycenaeans took advantage of the opportunity. Um, there hasn't been a lot of serious scholarship on this, and sometimes I often wonder if it's because um, if you start to look at the Minoans as a separate people, then you have to acknowledge their influence on Greece. And they, they were a separate people. They, they spoke a different language. Um, it's unlikely they were Indo-European. They probably originally migrated from Turkey and um, developed their own... Uh, unique island culture. Well, I mean, interesting, let me hold you a little bit on that. Um, I don't know if you know the work, or there's an interesting character that I read a while back called, uh, he's passed away now, called Thomas McAvaley, who's, uh, who wrote a great book called The Shape of uh, Ancient Thought, and he compared much of ancient Greece's or pre-classical Greece's understanding of the beginning of philosophy with the influence of India. And then he goes back to look and he says that you know you can see it in the writing, you can see it in the philosophy, you can see it in the syncretic, in the syncretic uh, statues, the Hellenistic Buddhas, and all that. Do you think there's a connection between Greece and India? Well, Hellenistic is quite late. That's the era of Alexander the Great. He well, conquered pre, India. Yeah, I'm okay. saying before that. He says there was a lot of influence from India prior to that. 
Um, not that I know of, but India, I mean, the, the Sanskrit is an Indo-European language, making it related to Hittite, which is also Indo-European, and Greek and Latin. These are all Indo-European, part of the Indo-European language families. And we know there was trade with that region, not necessarily trade where they were coming all the way directly, but down the line. Um, when I was a master's student, I worked out of sight in Syria, dating to about the time of Hammurabi, the 18th century BCE. And one of the things they got very excited about this site is they found a clove. Um, cloves had to have come from Indonesia. And that doesn't mean they were directly trading with Indonesia, but maybe you had something like the Silk Route, the Belt and Road uh, sort of thing. You were, how long did you spend in Greece? How long were you there? Um, three years. That's and then I, I, I go back usually every June right now because I've got a project near Sparta. I, I'm actually supposed to be in Sparta right now. Tell me about the project. What are you doing in Sparta? Or what were you meant to be doing in Sparta if this pandemic hadn't hit? Well, we did a survey a couple of years ago at the site of Vafio Paleopirgi. Vafio is one of the earliest and wealthiest Tholus tombs on mainland Greece. It dates to late Helladic II. Um, around the 15th century. So 1500 before... 1600. 1600 before yeah. the Christian era, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, yeah just yeah. for our listeners. And yeah. there's a site associated with it called Paleopirgi, which um, it's now very badly eroded from um, agriculture, but it would have been one of the largest Mycenaean sites on the mainland um, and hadn't been studied. And we did a survey there to collect um, artifacts around the area of the site and the Tholos tomb. Um, to sort of get a character, try to understand the landscape, and if there was to be an excavation, where might be the best place to try and excavate. So we had two seasons where we collected all these artifacts, and uh, we had a study season last June, and we were meant to have one this June, and another one next year where we finish studying the artifacts, and that means um, cleaning them, drawing them, photographing them, uh, looking at where they, they've all been mapped in using GIS uh, survey to sort of see where the concentrations... Which, for our listeners, what's GIS? Oh, gosh, Global Information Systems. It's, okay. a, it's, it's a way of plotting out where it was found without using uh, just a tape measure and a string. Is this project funded by Greek authorities as well, or is this uh, external funding? No, it's funded by the Institute for Aegean Prehistory in Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania. They fund a lot of uh, Aegean um, archaeological projects, and also... I do get some funding from the university in terms of a research allowance that I use to get myself there. And uh, we have a private donor, anonymous donor as well. I mean, it's interesting you talk about Aegean and this period of the Mycenae or the Mycenaeans. Culturally and politically, I guess, politically looking, thinking, putting on a politically political scientist perspective, I mean... The notion of a modern Greece or a modern Israel, we know are kind of modern constructions. You know, we, we looked and created what we wanted to be as part of a modern world. Yeah, modern modern Israel does not even adhere to bi- the definition of biblical Israel. So that's what we have the similar anxieties or you know, a mixture of self-loathing argument anxieties amongst Greeks as well. What is Greek? What isn't Greek? We, we and also Cyprus. Cyprus. And Cyprus. So we, we, you know, I mean, we fight, us, fight amongst themselves of what is a Hellene who isn't a Hellene. This, these notions, these kind of um, notions of authenticity or purity or understanding of who's who... Or categories. Categories, right? I mean, they've caused what Huntington might have called the sort of the, the, the beginning and the end in some ways are the centre of what we might term now cultural wars between left and right. And 
How do we overcome these cultural wars? How do we deal with this stuff? I think by looking to the past, we can sort of do that. I think we tend to too easily try to impose our modern categories onto the past. And my favorite example is the pirate Barbarossa. He's not so long ago that he's terribly ancient, but not so modern that he's caught up in the cultural wars. But he was born on the island of Lesbos. His, uh, I think it's his mother was Greek and his father was Albanian Muslim. And he became a pirate, um, pillaged throughout the Mediterranean, including as far as west as the Aeolian Islands near Italy. And um, he's a perfect example of how entangled these cultures were because they are coastal cultures and island cultures. And I think also part of the problem has to do with the way archaeologists and scientists looked at islands in the past. They were seen as like the Galapagos Island, these sort of pristine laboratories that nobody had uh, been to, so they were untouched. But in fact, island and coastal cultures in the Mediterranean were far more engaged than uh, people living in the hinterland. Um, they were in constant contact with each other, trading and interacting, and um, they would have been culturally entangled. So it goes back to the next question. I think it's very pertinent for now to the notions of classical Greece. We, we, many of us have talked about this. Let me put it to you. Is classical Greece or the idea of a classical Greece very much an Anglo-Germanic French invention of Renaissance or Enlightenment? Was there a classical Greece? There was a classical Greece, but um, I think you, I, I think it's probably been overemphasized because um, like Athenian democracy, if you look at the long history of Greece, even going from the first Olympics and 776 to the Hellenistic kingdoms, uh, Pergamon, um, Greek democracy was a hiccup, and it was seized upon and overemphasized. You could say the same thing about Homer and the Trojan War, in that the destruction of Troy was one small um, event that was part of a much larger series of events of uh, destruction and sacking of cities that was taking place all over the Mediterranean with uh, the movements of the, the Sea People tribes. And so I think, you know, it, in a way it's more about us and that we're overemphasizing this. And I remember in the early 90s being at a conference in Washington, D.C., where they were celebrating 2,500 years of democracy. And it was held in the National Archives um, under this rotunda. And there was this sort of circular walkway that went upwards. And there were various artifacts connected with Athenian democracy, like the voting tokens and the ostraca and things like that, stele, and as you moved up the ramp and you reached the center, you had uh, the U.S. Constitution. So it was a way of creating this genealogy. And it's unfortunate that this was before the internet because, you know, almost it's hard to find anything published about it. Mm. it it's interesting. You talk about the creation of a, what should we call it, a political, a cultural genealogy about who we are by reflecting to the past. And... Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, you wrote a great piece for Neos Cosmos um, uh, on Black Athena, which was titled, uh, well, let me put it here, The Black Athena and the Incredible Whiteness of Being, which just for our listeners is based around um, the principle of the, the idea of the Black Athena as developed by uh, then sinologist, uh, historian uh, Bernal, I think Martin Bernal. Bernal or Bernal? Bernal. Bernal, who looks at the Afro-Asiatic Afro roots of Athena or Hellenism or whatever. Very controversial for those that feel that 
colour is an issue, right? Whether negative or positive. I mean, uh, you know, being white, uh, the idea of whiteness for Greeks. In fact, you know, we've always argued, many of us, that colour is irrelevant to ancient Greeks or ancient Romans. It's really about whether you're part of the intellectual or linguistic nature of being Greek. But you wrote this great piece and you say in there that you actively were hired, you were hired to develop a black Athena subject at California State University, uh, Dominguez Hills, to counter the Afrocentric view of campus that black people were systematically excluded from the contributions of our fetishization of Western civilization. So in other words, you saw, you saw an Afrocentric perspective and you wanted to not discount that, but actually include it in the discussion. Explain to me how, how that worked, what, what it's all about. Let's tell maybe the listeners what the Black Athena concept is and well, how, for, what you've met. First of all, when Afrocentric, Afrocent, African studies departments were being initiated in the U.S., there weren't enough um, highly qualified uh, black historians with PhDs to teach them. And so... Um, it was not well taught. Um, you had myths being propagated like um, Cleopatra was black. We know she was Greek. Um, that the Napoleon soldiers shot the nose off the Sphinx as part of a Eurocentric conspiracy to hide the blackness of the ancient Egyptians. Uh, things like that. And that also the Greek philosophers stole philosophy from the Egyptians, from the Library of Alexandria and so forth. And um, I was hired to go in and just sort of debunk all of this. And rather than debunk it, I mean, I did debunk it, but at the same time, I didn't want to make my African-American students feel excluded from history. So I did the class, several things in the class. I talked about the historiography, that is the history of history, and how these ideas of Greece, let's say, is the ethnically pure childhood of... Uh, ancient Europe came about, or later Europe came about, rather, um, and about uh, sort of the fetishization and the writing out of people of color. And what I tried to do was sort of um, write about, the talk about the classical world and the earlier world in a more inclusive way. For example, talking about, um, I, I did two lectures on blacks in antiquity, one on the Nubian kingdom of Cush, uh, which was very prominent. They had a queen. They ruled over Egypt. Um, Taharqa, which is one of the main um, Kushite uh, kings, actually is mentioned in the Old Testament, talking about Abraham taking a Kushite wife, showing where black African people were part of history, talking, and then looking into the classical period. For this, I write, relied a lot on the work of, uh, he's kind of conservative, seen as conservative now, but the famous black classicist Frank Snowden, yeah. And he um, collected the textual references as well as artistic representations of Africans in the ancient Greek world and also the Roman world. And how um, the word Ethiops, meaning burnt-faced person, is first mentioned in Greek scholarship and how the Greeks admired um, the black Africans as the first to worship their gods. Correct. And um, also the poet Terence and so on and so forth, and how there really was a multicultural history that included um, people of color. Well, you're very right. I mean, very right. I mean, there's evidence uh, throughout literature, ancient Greek or classical literature, uh, even Homer talks about it, uh, about African peoples, but doesn't talk with a 
downward cast. It's actually see them as peers and equals. And in fact, many Greeks were African themselves. Yep. Uh, many Roman emperors were African. Yeah. At least two. Yeah. Uh, we know, that we Scipio know. Africanus. And, and uh, Scipio Africanus and uh, Caracalla as well, yeah. his father. And, and so it's interesting. At what point, though, did race or modern race become such a, a, a tinderbox issue? At what point did Greeks become white in terms of the fantasy of the West? Um, I don't know the exact historical moment, but let me back up just yeah. a moment to mention sure. something about slavery in the ancient yeah. world. Yeah. Whereas slavery in the modern world was the sort of systematic um, enslavement of people based on their color and ethnicity and culture in the ancient world, it was more like an accident of circumstance. If your city was captured, you might be enslaved. If your city was sacked, you might be enslaved. If you were in debt, you might be enslaved. And you could also sometimes um, move out of that circumstance, either through meritocracy or effort or birth or something. But it wasn't based on, it wasn't based on race. It wasn't race-based. Um, I think this is something that's a modern phenomenon. And science was sort of put in the service of defining people of color, indigenous people, as being less than human in order to uh, justify it under Christianity. It's interesting you say that because even in Greece we've had lots of debates. I mean, there was this kind of fantasy that, you know, ancient Greeks were all blue-eyed and blonde, you know, which is a fantasy really. But yes. it was actually something that was bought by Greeks of the Renaissance or Greeks in the post and the Enlightenment period as though as they were you know, starting the revolution against the Ottomans, for example. But the thing is, you may have had some Greeks that were blue-eyed um, sure. and blonde. I lived in Aleppo for a year. I had a Syrian boyfriend, and um, his family, there were eight children. He was short with sort of Mongolian-like eyes, His bro and he was dark. His older brother was tall, white, with blue hair, blue eyes and black hair. One of his sisters had red hair, blue eyes, and freckles, and another one was blonde with green eyes. Of course. I mean, my whole, our, our relationships, our families are like that. I mean, brought, you can, I mean, you can tell. I mean, my auntie, she's Cypriot. She may as well be from North Africa or the Middle East. My cousin, you know, blonde and blue-eyed, Germanic background. So clearly people were travelling and mixing. And so, so the notion of Greekness, what was that? Was that a philosophical notion, a linguistic notion that developed? You know, I think it was a. I think it was a geographic notion as well as a um, linguistic notion. Uh, there's a famous Israeli historian. His name is Irad Malkin, and he's written a lot on Greek colonization during the later period, not the period I study. And he's written a book called "It's a Small Greek World," and he um, comes up with the idea that Hellenic identity was something that really is born after the Greeks start to travel and colonize other places. It's not something they're so concerned about in earlier eras. And also, like, um, you know, I, I find the whole sort of fight over Macedonia is kind of amusing because the Macedonians weren't regarded as Greek at that time. They're kind of regarded as uh, country bumpkins. That's right. We, they were, I mean, the Spartans never saw them as even worthy of subduing <laughs> themselves under well, the Macedonians. Nobody was worthy of the Spartans except Spartans. <laughs> That's right, which is interesting to talk about slavery because they were the only ones at that time. The Helots. The Helots who actually enslaved the group of people based on who they were, which was their cousins, the Helots. 
Um, it's, uh, you know, a lot is made out of how Spartan women were liberated and could take part in athletics and all the things that men do, and then said, other people say, well, yeah, but that's because they had the helots. That's right. I mean, which is kind of true. I mean, in part, is it true that Greek that Spartan women were far more liberated than other Greek women of the time? It seems to be. I mean, mm. we only have the texts to go on, but... Uh, yeah, when I think of um, how Athenian women were treated, I often think of how um, women are treated in many traditional Islamic countries today. They sort of stayed at home. Uh, they took care of the family. They took care of the house. Men had their closest relationships with other men or with uh, courtesans. Courtesans were the exception. Um, these would be women who were educated uh, courtesan is a nice word for a prostitute, but uh, high high class, yeah, high class pr- pr- yeah. prostitutes. Yeah, we would. Um, let me ask you something. What you, you talked about being an accidental uh, uh, archaeologist, and I mean, you come from political science. You saw Lawrence of Arabia when you were in Greece for those three years. Um, was there conflict about what you were studying in terms of the archaeology that you were studying? Were the archaeologists of Greece worried about you? presenting archaeology from a different perspective? Did you find collegiate behaviour? How did, how did you deal with it? Um, I didn't have so much of a problem. I worked on a Greek excavation. I didn't. Ha- my problem wasn't really with the Greek archaeologists. It was with the American archaeologists right. and classicists because um, most people who do Greek prehistory, they come out of a background of classics where they've um, studied enough Greek and Latin to be able to teach it. Um, I had two years of ancient Greek. I the only Latin I know comes from Harry Potter novels, but um, I'd done my master's in the history of Mesopotamia and studied Sumerian, Akkadian, and Hittite, and I felt like all those things were completely valueless there. Also, I had various um, theoretical interests in how we go about interpreting the past, and uh, American classical archaeology at the time was very much rooted in the tradition of the German seminar and what I like to call the... Uh, the, the four Ds, dig it, draw it, describe it, and destroy it. Oh, and one more, the fifth D, date it. Date it. <laughs> I love that. That's the German version of it. Dig it, draw it. What is it? Dig it. Date it, draw it, describe it, and destroy it. Destroy it, yeah, which is, very, which is kind of interesting. I mean, right now, in the moment of history, we are, it, it seems like it's a particular watershed moment of history. We won't know until much later. Um, we see the culture wars seemingly what... Uh, Samuel Huntington called the culture wars coming to light and maybe what Edward Said talked about in terms of Orientalism coming to light. Somewhere along there, Greeks find it very difficult to place themselves. You know, we talked about Samuel Huntington's notion that the East and the West are going to come into a brawl and the Greeks, for him, fit in the East. For Edward Said, who talked about Orientalism and Occidentalism, the Greeks fit in the, fit in the West. Where do we fit in currently in this complex debate about cultural history? Well, I think it's where you choose to fit yourself. Um, I lived in Cyprus for a year, which I really loved. And uh, Cyprus is sort of between East and West, and there's always this constant tension, whether it's Hellenic or Eastern. And uh, one archaeologist described it as a place where you had a constant conga line of cultures moving <laughs> through there. And um, I didn't, there was one very prominent Cypriot archaeologist, Vasos Cariorgas, who I did not get along with because I dared to question that um, Mycenaeans had colonized there in the 13th century, um, that I saw Cypriot architecture as a local tradition that maybe drew on influences from the Aegean world but was uh, really independent. But um, 
Cyprus is located right now, it's considered part of the Middle East. Crete is located, is considered, you always hear Knossos described as the first throne of Europe. There was no Europe then. In ancient times, Crete was part of the Near Eastern cultural sphere. And if Crete had never become part of Greece, it might be regarded as part of the Near East like Cyprus is. So, and, and, and in modern world, I guess in terms of modern politics, Cyprus fits both in the East and the West, politically, I guess. I mean, it's an interesting place, Cyprus. It's it uh, is. I love Cyprus. It's. it's I was just going to say, I, I we love the food there because uh, they use spice. And when I was living in Greece, the only spice we had was our chef put cinnamon in the spaghetti, which was... <laughs> That's what we do. It's, it's an interesting... interesting um, you're American. You're seeing what's happening now in, in America. You've, you're seeing the... Protests. You saw the murder of George Floyd. Like all of us have seen it. Uh, what's going on? Um, the rocks have been raised and the worms are coming out. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's shocking and horrible. When I was twelve, I read the biography of Martin Luther King, and I thought when I read that with with my child's mind that that meant racism had ended, but it it hasn't ended. It seems to be getting worse and more polarized. And we have this president who is trying to divide Americans using uh, a lot of racist dog whistles. He'll claim he likes black people, but at the same time, he uses uh, um, slogans from George Wallace, like law and order, refers to uh, people of colors coming from shithole countries, uh, tells them to go back where they came from. Um, But it's an extraordinary juxtaposition to know that only four years ago, you had the first African-American president. Yeah. Uh, a centrist, a liberal by American standards, I suspect by our Australian Anglo-British standards, pretty much a centrist of sorts. I mean, not exactly radical. He would be seen as left of center in America. Here I would see him almost as kind of right wing because Barack, I I remember hearing John Howard say he was for the great Australian values of mateship and egalitarianism. And I don't think there are too many even Democrats who would say that in America. Yeah, that's right. But it's a sharp contrast, isn't it, though? I mean, we do expect some kind of moral... I mean, if we look at ancient world, it's a little bit like Greece or maybe Rome, however corrupted those places were at times and chaotic. Was there an expectation then that they would provide some moral guidance? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Is that what we're looking at America at? at that that America would or that the ancients would? Both. I would not be looking... Well, it's really sad because America helped spearhead the great liberal world order of the post-war period. Right. And now Europe is starting to look at saying, you know, we have to look at ourselves, look after ourselves because America is not really going to uh, look after us. And China is quite willing to uh, fill that vacuum. And in terms of Trump coming after Barack Obama, a lot of people who voted for Obama voted for Trump. Not, I don't think they expected what they got. Um, I think they just wanted change. And, um, I mean, there, there's one of the never-Trumpers who's a Republican. In fact, he's uh, George Conway, who's Kellyanne Conway's husband. husband and he trolls Trump mercilessly. And he said something that I kind of agreed with, too, that he thought, you know, he didn't want Trump to be president, but he thought once he got in there, maybe he'd try to rise to the occasion. And it seemed like in the beginning he was putting fairly decent people around him, and he keeps just throwing them out, and uh, he just seems to be getting more and more uh, unhinged. 
Will it change, though? I mean, it is a fluid and great democracy. He can't stay more than four years. And will he lose Eight years. Eight years. Eight, yeah, but, uh, sorry, no, another Two four terms. years. Yeah, yeah, another four years, I mean. Is he going to win the next election? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, people said he wouldn't win the last one, and uh, the polls were all wrong. You had a lot of people who, uh, what they called the secret Trump vote, and that could very well happen again. I don't really know. I mean, we're only six months into this year, and we've already had an impeachment, a pandemic, and race riots. It's like we've had, uh, and also a, a depression. It's like we've had 1998 impeachment, 1929 depression, 1968 riots, um, 1918 pandemic, all within a period of six months. So who knows what's going to happen? But one thing I will say is that, you know, voting in America is voluntary, and in the last few elections, only half of the eligible voters voted. And it's been pretty much, most of the time, a fairly close election in that the president has been getting elected by maybe one quarter of the eligible voters. So it doesn't really necessarily no, reflect the whole country. I think, yes, that's true. I mean, I was talking to an African-American colleague now, and she said something interesting. She said, uh, the protests are great for now. They are a now. What happens after? is critical. I mean, um, the protests have shown us the wounds, have shown us what's going on. There's been some reform. There's been some talk of reform. Where to from there, though? I mean, where where do you think? Well, this is quite unusual. These are the longest lasting, you know, often when you have a sort of a racial flare-up like this in America, the riots go on for maybe a week, 10 days at most, and now they've been going on for 22 days. And... Uh, there seems to be real interest in systemic change, if not through the Congress, which is very slow to act, through the, through the city and state governments. And I think people are taking it very seriously, especially after the uh, most recent shooting uh, came out. And these body cameras make, and people with their cell phones, everybody's a journalist, it makes all the difference. And I think there will be reform of the police department. So th there's this trendy slogan, defund the police. But what they really mean is to not use the police for every issue. If somebody's sick or has an emergency, send somebody else. Don't always send police. And maybe train the police differently. Well, Ban chokeholds. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, people may need to understand there's something like 18,000 police departments in the United States. A lot of them in diverse jurisdictions it's not like here where the state takes care of the police and there's six or seven state departments and the federal police local governments in po uh, takes care of police it's a very complex it is and they need more community police what i would call community policing that is people that are part of the community um becoming the police not not people coming from outside people who are looking after their own neighborhoods and uh I think that's the w part of the way forward, but uh, it's it's difficult. I mean, uh, Pete Buttigieg, who ran as a Democrat for a while, he was criticized for the problems he was having dealing with his own police department, and he his response basically is like, "I've been trying to deal with it. It's not it's not an easy fix." I mean, it's interesting. I'll take you back to what we started from. You call. I mean, I've seen a lot of your posts, and I tend to have a certain harmonious view on some of the things that we agree with. Call yourself a libertarian. Explain to our listeners what, in your mind, what sort of libertarian are you? Because here it does have a connotation of of right wing. Yeah, it I, has. It's, it's, it, it's very disturbing because I've uh, I've actually quit four Australian libertarian Facebook pages because they weren't libertarian; they were no. all right. 
I became a libertarian in 1976. One of my undergraduate professors was John Hospers, who was the first Libertarian Party candidate for president, and I read all the books. Hayek, Hospers, Nozick, uh, Friedman, so on and so forth. A lot of people who call themselves libertarian today have watched a Ron Paul podcast, or even worse, a Stefan Molyneux podcast, who's a notorious racist That's and right. alt-right provocateur who creates false Eurocentric histories. And to me, a libertarian is somebody who um, respects the right of other individuals to do whatever they want to do, so long as they don't infringe on my right to do what I want to do. And um, the only proper role of the state is a police force to protect one's property, um, an, a defense force to protect the homeland, and a court system to adjudicate disputes. And then you have libertarians that would even like to see those three branches privatized. And I also use another shorthand that I recently came up with. This, this idea of not infringing on the rights of others is called the non-aggression principle. But I've recently come up with what I call the four Ms. Muslims, marijuana, marriage, and migrants. Um, Explain that to Okay, you. I will. Let's, I will. Start, let's start with marijuana for a little bit because, uh, you know, we, we sometimes have certain predilections towards certain things. I want to know about marijuana. Libertarians, well, marijuana is here shorthand for all drugs, but libertarians believe in the legalization of victimless crimes. Fantastic. No, that's drug laws. Uh, prostitution, and people often come back and say, well, what if this, my child does this, or what if somebody has a joint and gets in a car accident? Well, people drink now or use their cell phones and get in car accidents. Those, these are like false arguments. So that's that's the marijuana argument. By the way, I was back in California in uh, November where they will even bring the um, They'll bring you a bag of marijuana goodies and drop it off at your hotel. That's I'm just looking at my producer now. That's what we need to have here from now on in a podcast. I think it's important. Podcasts for or podcasts? <laughs> we can have podcasts. I think that's a great name. I think what we're going to call it now is a classical podcast. And tell me about the Muslim thing. How does that 4M happen? That means that um, Muslims have all the rights that anybody does. There's a lot. Um, I mean, it's, it's something that I found interesting here is like a lot of people who claim to be for the free market, these are usually white men, and they're for the free market as long as they don't have to compete with migrants. Which I find really fascinating because as a, maybe a libertarian myself, and without meaning the progressive libertarian, capitalism's a great thing for opening up to migrants and minorities. I mean, that's the first thing we do as exactly. ethnics is we open up shops. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know the first uh, non-Africans, I won't say white, but the first non-Africans to, uh, to, to serve African-Americans in, in, in modern America were Greeks and Jews. I mean, yeah. the first ones here to serve it, it were Greeks and Jews. We were the migrants that had to do that stuff. Well, even my own department at the university, when I first got here, 50% of the people in my department were born in Australia. Now only two of them were, and uh, it's 80% uh, people born, uh, foreign-born. Migration is a great, you know, aspiration is part of a migration yeah. principle. So tell me the other two M's. The uh, well, I, uh, migration. Yeah, of course. We believe in open borders. Same here, yep, that's um, fantastic. And uh, marriage as in gay marriage, as in everybody. It, it, th- and these are like a litmus test. This, doesn't, this isn't the whole libertarian philosophy, but if you don't believe in those things, you can't really call yourself I mean, a libertarian. I find it interesting, I find this question, I'll post it. How can you be a genuine Democrat or a liberal or even a conservative if you don't believe in those things? I find it hard. Yeah. I mean, how, how can you be a, even a genuine conservative and not believe 
in the idea that everyone's got a right to be married or everyone's got a right to a family. If you exactly. believe a family's a family unit, it's an important thing. David Cameron gave a great speech on this when he was still prime minister, saying, you know, marriage values are conservative values, so of course I'm for gay marriage. And there's a very good book out right now by George Will called The Conservative Sensibility. And in defining conservatism, he defines two types. He talks about European-style conservatism, which is to protect, like, religion and the throne, protecting... To conserve like, things, yeah, yeah. To conser But conserving morals. And he distinguishes that from American conservatism, which should be about protecting the view, the classical liberal views of the founders, which are individual liberty. Which, which kind of hits a nerve in our program. I mean... These are some of these values were found in uh, classical Greece, if we call it that. Is that right? In as long as you weren't a woman, but uh, also, That's I mean, true. Thomas Thomas Jefferson was also heavily influenced by Cyrus the Great, who was written about by Xenophon, and possessed ten copies of the Cyropedia. Um, and Cyrus the Great was seen as he, he's seen as a great hero by everybody um, because he also. Give us, a little, give, give us a little bit of a Cyrus. He's the Persian. That's Persian yeah, king, yeah. yeah. And uh, he, his great law code was written on a cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's about this big, and it's been touring the world. And something that's interesting about it is that um, the most extreme mullahs, as well as the Shah of Iran and Thomas Jefferson ever, and the Israelis, they've all embraced... Uh, Cyrus the Great as a code, as yeah. a, a certain code, legal code, a yeah. pre, pre, an ancient legal code. Yeah. Um, in terms of the back to the politics, which I'm interested in, in terms of the, you talked about Friedman and Hayek. Uh, do you believe that sort of this critique that I hear from a lot of my peers on neoliberalism, this kind of constant critique of neoliberalism, I sometimes feel they haven't really understood Hayek and Friedman the way that someone has read them. Is that true? Am I right in saying that? It could be. I'm not sure which neoliberal. It's it, you know the terms are becoming terms increasingly meaningless. Meaningless. That's right. That's what it, I'm getting at. It's like uh, I mean, if you look at what conservative means now in the Republican Party, it's been gutted by Trump. Yeah. It's it's nothing to do with fiscal responsibility. It's all to do with uh, controlling women's choice. Mm. I mean, how does one maintain tradition, but at the same time, uh, you know, uh, attack? conservatism, but at the same time support the maintaining or the tra or of intangible traditions? I mean, how do you do that? Um, well, the what I believe in conserving are the values enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. Obviously not the one about people of color being less than human, but I'm thinking about the Bill of Rights. And mm -hmm. to me, that's what conservatism, conservatism should mean, not about controlling individuals' um, do we, do control over their own bodies. Do we have? Do we need a Bill of Rights in Australia? I think so. Mm. I don't feel like there's complete freedom of speech here. Um, a good story I like to quote is a story of Scott Parkin. I don't know if you know no, this. He was an American. Well, he still is American. He came over here as an agitator to help um, help with um, building a nonviolent protest movement about multinational corporations such as Bechtel that Dick Cheney was heavily involved in. But that's neither here nor there. But be because he was seen as coming here to help um, help uh, organize nonviolent protests, he was picked up immediately, put in jail on a con with a con cell with a concrete floor for ten days, sent back to America, and told uh, he could never apply to come to Australia again unless he paid a ten thousand dollar fine. 
And in America, where this is seen as not really a big deal, they weren't even sure why he was sent back from Australia. But uh, look Scott Parkin up on Wikipedia. So we, we have a situation in Australia, what you're saying is that we can't be fully confident that we have freedom of speech and full individual Not just freedom of speech. I find, I find the compulsory voting to be, um, I, I feel, to be statist. Not because, you know, you don't have a lot of choices here. You do, but compulsory voting is something I associate with uh, countries with authoritarian regimes. Couldn't America be helped with compulsory voting by making sure that everyone votes rather than a small proportion that comes Making out? sure everyone votes doesn't mean they'll vote uh, thoughtfully. No, which I guess goes back to why Plato, Aristotle and a few of the classical Greeks really loathed democracy. Really, they thought that you shouldn't vote unless you're really fully aware of what you're voting about. So, I mean, we never get there, though. We could never tell... We could never be clear as to why people vote and who they vote for. Yeah. I also find the booze buses to be very authoritarian. Yes, I don't like them either, especially when I'm driving. You know, it's oh, We <laughs> just don't drive anywhere. But I just... The idea of them, it's like... Uh, I don't think 0.05 is really enough to do anything. Whenever you read about a drunk driving incident, the person is usually way over 0.1, usually around 0.2. It's interesting. I mean, even in the drug debate, I mean, you know, a while back there was uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was constant discussions about legalising marijuana, legalising heroin, legalising drugs. It's almost like it's fallen off the radar in Australia. It's, uh, unti- it's, it's really something nobody talks about anymore. People are still campaigning for it, um, mm. people that I know, but it's it's not a huge deal. But you'd think, especially now that it's been legalized in Canada and America, mm. um, that it's not such a big deal. But I was also surprised by the gay marriage debate here and how much, you know, how there had to be a referendum on it. It was yeah. like, so wha- it was just over the top. How many years have you been in Australia? Fifteen. Fifteen, okay. So you missed out in part, you sort of got the tail end of the Howard government, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I was there for the hand, the famous handshake with Mark Lee. Right, okay. <laughs> That's a very famous handshake. You can see. But it's interesting, John Howard was the first person who gave body to neoconservative bones in some way. I mean, he was a... He's the man who seized the guns. That's right. He seized the guns... Now, tell me about that. You don't like that, do you? You don't no. like that? No. <laughs> I started that. shooting when I was 12. <laughs> so, so you don't like that? You're like a Huntress Thompson of the archaeology set. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't. I haven't fired a gun in a long time, partly because I live here, and I had an unregistered gun that I gave away to a friend when I, when I left, but I used to go shooting with one of my archaeology teachers. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, we kind of lord that as something great that he did you know it's about a lot of liberals or american style liberals or left-wingers here would lord that that's probably one of the good things that john howard did and you sort of say no well i mean the thing is people still have guns people still kill there was that terrorist on uh i think it was burke street a couple years or so ago that uh blew up gas cans and uh I read about, um, or I heard on the news here, I try to always listen to talk radio when I drive because it's. I still feel like I'm trying to understand the culture. And they were talking about a gun store in Thornberry where a gang drove a van into the gun store and did a smash and grab and took like uh, 50 handguns at least. Yeah, it's and in uh, my place, yeah. They did that a while back, yeah. yeah. I mean, but you don't want a situation like America, for example, where every man and his dog's got a gun. I mean, there's too many Well, guns you know, there. it's kind of funny because the person who did more for gun sales than anyone was Barack Obama. And uh, I'm not saying that as being anti-Obama. I actually voted Obama in 2008. Um, but the thing is, every time there was a shooting, 
Obama would make noises about gun control and everybody would run out and buy more guns. It's almost impossible to seize the guns in the U.S. now because you have more guns than people. What, why is that? What's going on? I mean, from what I read and from what I, the little that I understand is that uh, guns were not so huge right up until somewhere in the mid-80s they became. I mean, prior to that, NRA was really about controlling guns and hunting licenses and kind of a, an association, a bit like the RSCV, kind of a control-based association rather than an advocate. For and guns. an educational association. And yeah, but so what happened? Where did this kind of gun culture begin? I don't really know. I don't like the term gun culture because I had somebody tell me I wasn't afraid of Hamas rockets in Israel because I come from a gun culture, and right. I felt like that was racist. Yeah. But uh, I don't really know. It's like, you know, I grew up with it, so it was never like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're allowed to eat candy whenever you want when you're growing up, you don't, like, sit there and scarf it down or something. Um, I I really don't know, other than maybe people becoming afraid of the government and government control and this sort of culture of uh, paranoia. Mm. Um, culture of paranoia, that's an interesting one. Do you think we are witnessing a global sense of cultural paranoia because of social media and things like that? I've seen arguments in social media become almost, you know, very beyond terse, you know, ugly and weird and, you know... Yeah, and pe- well, people don't even know how to argue. It's like if somebody disagrees with you, they'll, they won't say, I disagree with you because I believe this. They'll say something like, you're insane. Yeah. Um, and also, I just want to come back to sure. the gun control sure, thing sure, for sure. a minute. Um, the problem is, too, the ex- the both sides become so extreme and polarized, they can't really have a dialogue with each other. It's like you have people that, you know, they sleep with their gun, and you have people who believe nobody should have a gun. And what they really need to do is work out something in the middle, but they can't even talk to each other. I was having dinner with a friend of mine in Athens a couple years ago, and she was anti-gun. And I said, okay, that's a very interesting position. It's not one I share. But, uh, okay, what, what is your program? What, do you, what would you practically do to change this situation? And she couldn't give me an answer. And the thing is, people are just sort of, shouting at each other they're not really well, that's happening everywhere I mean, it's happening now with culture too the stuff we talked about before i mean uh color uh culture the notion of people of color the notion of what is an ancient greek the notion these are have become shouting matches now. yes i mean i've been it was interesting a few years ago golden dawn um it was a fascinating it was within one week they wrote a post because of an article they wrote condemning golden dawn you know the nazi yep. party in greece uh, they called me a dirty gypsy, a Jew, and gay. And I sort of responded, I'm possibly all those things. <laughs> they might have left out a couple, couple there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> like I often get called as an academic with people who don't even know me um, on the right will tell me I'm a postmodern liberal Marxist yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. feminist. Th- feminist. Well, at the same week I had... Um, a woman of colour, very activist, call me a typical Greek white male, right? So, and I thought, when did I... Be? What's I a typical a Greek, Greek white, white male? male? I don't know, because I write, then I write a piece called When Did I Become White? Because I was yeah. trying to figure out when exactly did... Because I, mean, I, I was brought up in a, in a society where Greeks weren't white well until the 1940s. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were con- part of the colour. Wogs. Wogs, yeah, wogs. I mean, I, wogs. I actually had a student go to Greece and write back in email talking about the wogs and i said don't you ever yeah, put that in an right, email that's to right me. well also the fact that i keep saying to people you know i don't even like it as a comedian you know as a you know but but it's interesting this polarization this inability to talk through these things it's a bit like what you said you did at university where you try okay you saw the afrocentricity you saw some really 
not accurate historical perspective, you know, but you brought people in and, you know, you kind of, like I say for a joke sometimes, doesn't matter what colour you are, you can all be Greek. It's, yeah. like, it's not something you'd be born into. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't understand. You know, when I was an undergraduate, Angela Davis came to our campus to speak, and back then she was really in the thick of being in the Communist Party. And I didn't agree with her on many things, but I went to hear her, and I thought how lucky I am to be exposed to these different viewpoints. And part of my political science degree, I was taking classes on Marxism and communism, and the professor invited me to give a lecture to the class on libertarianism, and he gave me a top mark. And I, I see that as an example of what tolerance and communication uh, should be. And people aren't like that anymore. They're intolerant. We're totally intolerant of other views. I mean, I guess part of the, if there is, whether it's mythological or real, whether we prescribe our views to it, if there was a particular period in Greece where discussion and dialogos and dialogue were important, I guess it was about tolerating various views of citizens. Is that correct? And working through them. But, I mean, even now, if you want to go into debating or if you want to become a lawyer, you need to be able to argue both sides of an issue. Of course, of course. So tell me now, Louise, where are we with you? What, do you, what, do we, what can our listeners go to to see your work? What are you working on, first of all, currently? Oh, gosh, a few things. I'm working on an architectural biography of a building I excavated at the Palestine site in Israel. Wow, because I heard, let me just stop you there for a minute. I heard that you, one of your great interests is architecture. Is that correct? Yes, that's, okay. my, that's my passion, but it's not everybody else's passion. I'm <laughs> kind of like, that's like my least cited stuff, but it's right. what I really enjoy doing. I have a big article coming out near the end of the year on all the Mason's Marks in Cyprus. Right. You have more Mason's Marks there than you do on the Greek mainland. So why is that? Um, I think they were consciously, a after Crete Falls, which is, um, let's say, 1450, and the Mycenaeans go on till the end of the 13th century, I think Cyprus kind of stepped into that vacuum and started imitating uh, some of these symbols of power and also symbols of Minoan power and using that to um, become part a full part of what I like to call Club East Med. Okay, Club East Med. Let me just ask you something about the Mycenaeans, which I'm fascinated. I was going to... If we had to imagine the Mycenaeans, what are we imagining? What are we looking at? Who are they? That's a good question. You know, I, I did this talk for my professorial lecture on globalization and populism. And um, I tried to find pe um, depictions of Mycenaean peasants. And really all I could find mainly, except for a couple images, were elites. And we have a good idea about the Mycenaean elites and the palace culture not so much about the hinterland. So what, are, what were the elites like? I mean, were they, are they the Hollywood version of the Greek with a drape? Are they, wh what are we looking at? Mm, I think they uh, dressed well, ate well. I think they were business people. I think they were traders. All the Mycenaean sites, main Mycenaean sites are near the, uh, near the coast. Uh, a lot of them later became Venetian trading colonies. Do they speak Greek? What do they speak? Yeah, they spoke Greek. Uh, they... They took the Minoan Linear A script, which was used to write the Minoan language, and used it to write their language, which is an um, early form of ancient Greek. Just like we use the same alphabet to write English, German, and French, which are different languages, but same alphabet. Well, I heard somewhere that if we were to hear ancient Greek, or I mean, in this case, ancient Greek, and I'm going to ask you about Minoan, but if we were to hear it, it wouldn't sound at all like Greek now, in the sense it would have sound totally different, an alien language. It sounds very different. I, um, I had two years of ancient Greek before working on my first excavation in Greece, and I got a page of excavation commands, and uh, I mispronounced all of them horribly, but I finally got the ear to where I was doing it uh, correctly. There's also, 
Um, modern Greek is a much simpler language. There are fewer tenses and uh, genders and things like that. I mean, we can read. I mean, I can go to I go to the Museum of Athens or the Athens Necropolis Museum and and read it. Not fully understand it, but I can understand in part because yep. there's a connection. But the sound would have been very different. Yes, the sound is, sound is very different. Just like, I mean, Australian sounds different from American English. And the Mycenaeans would have spoken Greek, you're yes. saying. So, so they then become the first, are they the proto-Hellenes? Are they the first Greeks? Um, well, you probably, they were probably Greek before they started writing in Greek because they had to have the language in order to write it down. So uh, I, I think the proto-Hellenes go back a little earlier than... At least to, I'd say, the late early Bronze Age. When is that? Fifteen hundred. Twenty two hundred. Twenty two hundred yeah. BC. Yeah. So they you already had you already had Mycenaeans by about the seventeenth, sixteenth century with the shaft graves, but you don't get the palaces till later. You don't get the linear B until later. So these proto Greeks, these what well, we're talking, uh, Homer's myths. I mean, they are the proto Greeks. The Achilles and all those characters. They're your proto Greeks. Um, they would have been closer to. Um, Mycenaean Greeks, I think. So really way back from that, kind of interesting. Yeah. and I actually, you know, I'm not a big fan of Homer. I, I prefer Tell me, yeah, I've read about this. You, you don't like Homer very Explain to me why you don't like Homer. Oh, a few reasons. First of all, I, you know, I spent years before I went to Athens reading Mesopotamian myths and Gilgamesh and Akkadian and reading Sumerian stories. And uh, every people kept, would just automatically parrot Homer as the first First, um, first literature, and it's not the first literature. It's about a thousand fourteen hundred years too late to be the first oh, literature. Okay, because we keep saying like yeah. the first great literature. No, Gilgamesh is the first great first literature. Gilgamesh, yeah. And I'm not saying that because I'm half Lebanese. Oh, well, <laughs> right. Okay, we're now, now we've got transparency. And uh, <laughs> but also, um, you know, what bothers me about the whole Trojan War saga too is like uh, people do really stupid things, and then the gods get in. Before they have a chance to solve the problem themselves, the gods get in there and stir things up. And I find that a little bit... Uh, I like it better when people sort of solve and struggle their, for their own problems. And uh, I like the pathos in Mesopotamian literature more. Mm, interesting. I, I've, I've always loved, not so much the Iliad, but I've always loved uh, the Odyssey. Because in some ways, I read someone, I can't remember who, who said the archetypal Greek is Odysseus or Odysseus because he's poor, comes from a small island, he's cunning and he uses cunning more than anything else to survive, you not even win. So I mean it's interesting archetype. There's an archetypal sort of vision of what a Greek is. I think anybody who wins though uses cunning. That's right. It's like academia, you're there are all these to succeed in academia. I mean now we give students a lot more coding, but uh to succeed in academia when I was coming up the ranks, it's like you weren't you weren't um, explicitly told anything. You kind of had to look at the people who were successful and learn to imitate them. It's kind of like what Michael Hertzfeld talks about when he talks about apprenticeship and the art of cunning. Apprentices are able to watch the master and steal the knowledge, not really have it given to them. Well, that's the case in many things. Yeah. I mean, in music and dance yeah. and jazz and flamenco in Greek music, you'll find that apprenticeship. North Indian classical music, classic case well, of apprenticizing. I think one of the best movies for understanding success is The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> you like Maybe that. that's a modern odyssey. <laughs> it is a modern odyssey about getting in and getting out. Um, let's get back before we end. Um You've spoken, uh, you've written for Neos Kosos, you spoke to the Greek community. 
it's great to see uh, an academic. It's great to see you speaking. How were you received in the Greek community? Uh, extremely well. Um, I love speaking to the Greek community, first of all, because they're usually more engaged than my students are. Um, they're paying attention. <laughs> they ask great questions. And one, I've talked on a wide variety of things from Philistines to pirates to the Minoan palaces to actually my colleagues and I put together a symposium where we discussed philosophy. And I was like the dumb student because I don't have the philosophy background. But uh, the first lecture I think I gave was on the function of the Minoan palaces. And the first question I got was, if you don't believe they're palaces, why do you call them palaces? And I couldn't have planted a better question. <laughs> so, I mean, that started my love affair, I think. With so the what, you don't believe they're palaces? No. What, what are they? I think they were um, sort of temple administrative centers. Right, okay. Governed by a bureaucracy, by a religious bureaucracy. A bit like Egypt, sort of? More like Mesopotamia, of? more like Sumer. So you've got this bureaucratic priestly cast of some yeah. sort, elitist? Of some sort. The thing is, they never portray themselves. You get all these um, gold rings that portray the elites on them, mm. and they're always faceless. And now I have an idea. I want to give a paper called The Minoans as the First Deep State. Really? Yeah. So that's it. I mean, I have personally been very, I've been fascinated, but I've never had a great interest in the Minoans because I've never seen them as very Greek in a strange in a strange way. It's an interesting kind of... They aren't. They aren't. That's why I've never sort of... Uh, but people are fascinated by the Minoans. I mean, it's almost like an Egyptian sort of fantasies about Egyptians. Well, I can tell you why. It's like uh, the reason I want to study the architecture is extremely complex. And um, also this is another thing classes have done, applied sort of a s simplistic Eurocentric model saying, you know, the Minoans were confused because their architecture is labyrinthine, but to, to build that have upper floors and stairways, you have to have planned it. But they say the Minoans were confused. The Mycenaeans were clear and logical. The Mycenaeans are a ma masculine culture. The Minoans are a feminine That's culture, right. and uh, it's kind of it's kind of like a load of rubbish. But uh, yeah, the, 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 it's an argument that's been yeah. portrayed. I mean, it's a sort of the beginning of rationalism, masculinization. Yeah. The fact that you know Athena was born as Zeus's head later. You know, the beginning of a masculine, rational self, and the Minoans were still quite a feminine and whatever. That you're, you're saying that's bullshit. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. it's bullshit. Yeah. And uh, what I like about the Minoans, or how complex their architecture is. They have a language we can't read, but their architecture is a type of language. Their art is a type of language, and we argue about it. And it's like, it's the same thing that drew me to the sea people. Every time you peel off a layer of the onion, there are more layers. So you'll be going back to digging uh, soon? I mean, when this pandemic's over, or...? I'm if not, it's over. I'm finished digging at my site in Israel because the area where I was digging has been shut down. I'm more like studying and writing about it. I actually have I have sabbatical starting next month, and I have quite a large grant to go to Israel. And if I can't use it by the end of February, I have to give it back. And so I'm really hoping that um, Australia will let me out and Israel will let me in. Um, your views of the pandemic... You think uh, it was something we're going to get used to, like ancient peoples? We're going to deal with it on a regular basis? Uh. I'm hoping we come up with a vaccine. I think uh, the world is trying really hard because it is, it's costly. It's costing business. It's costing travel. It's um, sort of curtailing people's lives. Um, but pandemics have always been with us. It's just that they don't affect us because of things like lockdown and science, at least with people who believe in science 
these days. It's kind of like sometimes I feel like we're living in a new dark age. But uh, I mean, lockdowns have been and quarantine and separating have always been part of dealing with uh, c- contagious illness. Even you know, in ancient times when they separated menstruating women or lepers or or something, there's this idea that when somebody's sick, you you separate them. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's maybe it's something. Maybe we haven't had a pandemic for such a long time. We've forgotten. Um, I mean, there've been epidemics like mm. SARS and MERS, but they didn't really spread on a global scale like this did. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been since 1918. But the thing is, people should remember, even if it's been a hundred years. There, you know, there, there's history people can read about. Well, history. Before we close off, history. I get very concerned sometimes when I see things and hear things, particularly now between the sort of what I would loosely call the brawls, the cultural wars between the um, cultural left, or you know, derisively called the woke, and, and on the other, on the on the other hand, the hard right. It seems that both camps, and we're talking about this shrill kind of tense, you know, extreme positioning, has got a lot to do with people not knowing any history. Why aren't we teaching history? Are we teaching history? Are we not teaching it enough? Are we? What are we're we doing? We're teaching it. A lot of people aren't taking it, or they don't trust us because they think we're all postmodern leftist feminist Marxists. That's right. Um, they're going to like to the Ramsey. Aren't you all? The Ramsey. They're going to the Ramsey Center where they're also getting a very selective view of history. Um, I feel like there are plenty of views. And uh, one thing I like about my department at Melbourne Uni, we're a department of classics and archaeology, which includes Near Eastern archaeology and Bronze Age archaeology and Aegean archaeology. And it's not like this sort of closed off, uh, you know, Homer to Homer to... Uh, well, Ramsey Center is an interesting thing because, I mean, that's how we met, something that I'd written yeah. that you came upon. And I've always hated the idea that somehow... Uh, without any consultation of Greeks at all, <laughs> you know, it's happened twice, a few times, where Tony Abbott and his crew and a few others have come to the defence of the West, but at no point have they consulted a Greek archaeologist, a Greek thinker, a Greek language specialist at all, and their world goes Homer, Renaissance, Britain, like yeah. <laughs> like zero between. I mean, and that is something that a lot of the post, I mean, I'm, I'm using inverted commas, postmodernist, the woke, whatever rail against and probably rightly so but there's nothing in between for both camps to sort of say hey guys there's, there's a lot of complexity that you a lot of grain yeah here. yeah i i agree with that and sometimes i think that you know a lot of this sort of shrillness you get out of the ramsey center like you know the universities aren't teaching western civilization and you know our values and uh they're all postmodern blah 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 and i think it's a way of sort of they have to get the public on their side or get money from donors or get um, attract interest, and they do it by creating this other. Things haven't changed since the Israelites and the Philistines. Mm. Um, but what they are saying, it's it's a pack of lies. I, I troll the Ramsey Center every chance I get. Well, I, ha- um, I do too, but it's interesting. They, I mean, it's a little bit reminds me of a situation where Alexander the Great, uh, it's very debatable, terms amongst Greeks too, uh, Alexander the Great uh, sends off at that time he's in Persia and he sends off images of himself back to Greece of him dressed in Persian gear and you know married a Persian wife and he's taken on the whole culture. Of course the Greeks... He's gone native. He's gone native, right? Of course the Greeks hate it. You know, they're like, what are you doing? You've lost your Greekness. Like, So this stuff is kind of real even now. It really hasn't shifted that Yeah, much. but you know, this is what made it possible for Rome to rule the world. Rome, when they conquered people, they didn't make them absorb Roman no. culture. They no. syncretized it. And yeah. uh, 
also when the Kushites took over Egypt, you know, you have a you have a culture that was supposedly inferior, and they're taking over the religion, language, and iconography of the people they've conquered and using it to rule over them in a very clever way. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, every time somebody talks about colonialism, I'll say, you know, and the West, and I'll say, well, go to the Met Museum in New York and have a look at some of the sarcophaguses of uh, sarcophagi of Romans from Egypt, and they're Egyptian, essentially. Uh, look at the syncretic art of uh, Indo-Hellenic empires. I mean, there's a syncreticism, there's a syncretismos, but there's a kind of a, yeah. a mixing. I actually worked at a Ptolemaic site in Egypt, and it was interesting because you've still got the Egyptian architectural forms, but with Greek inscriptions on yeah. them. And uh, Well, look, Louise, tell us where we can find your work for our listeners, and what we'll be looking forward to next. <laughs> Um, well, I'm hoping to write uh, an article on um, the role that plague could have played in the Bronze Age collapse. I want to write about the Minoan deep state, an uh, uh, article on Minoan houses, um, finishing up a building biography, um, an article on our worked pavement, really exciting stuff at uh, the Philistine side of Telesophy Gath. Uh, working on the stratigraphy there. Lot, I've got lots of stuff I get. And where can we find your work? I mean, generally for our listeners. Okay. There's a website that's like a social networking site for academics, like you have Facebook or Twitter. Um, academics have a site called academia.edu. Academia.edu. And if you Google academia.edu in my name, you'll find almost all of my articles freely accessible. Fantastic. Um, there's a few that aren't because they're in commercial publications. Um so I'd also recommend Ancient History Magazine mm-hmm. and also my um, textbook, which is an introductory textbook, Aegean Art and Architecture. You can get that from Amazon.com. Uh, I, let's say that again, Aegean uh, Art and Architecture. And, of course, everything's Greek in there. As we know. No. Every, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll tell you one last anecdote. <laughs> tell I'll tell me. you, yeah. you know, people who study the Greek Bronze Age, Aegean Bronze Age, it's like being a dog person or a cat person or a Mac person or a PC person. You're either a Minoan person or a Mycenaean person. And I was at a conference on Middle Bronze Age Greece, and I had dinner with Oliver Dickinson, who's one of the legendary um, fathers of a Gian- Mycenaean archaeology. And he said, I always thought you were a Minoan person. What made you interested in the Mycenaeans? And I said, well, I would never was. I never found them very interesting, but... Uh, I got interested in the sea people, and that made them interesting. <laughs> and he grumbled, I don't believe in the sea people. <laughs> well, Mycenaean people are like probably the apple people, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. The Minoan people are the apple, apple people. people. right, okay. Well, Louise, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank um, you. And we'll hear more of you as we go along, and we'll be posting some of uh, your articles in the link on the podcast. And uh, thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Cheers. You're very welcome. You have been listening to the podcast series The Cave, brought to you by Nels Cosmos. Think, are the shadows on the wall real, or are they just shadows? Until next time.